Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, I said I had uh, some local stories with some national significance for you this afternoon. Here's the first of them. Is there trouble brewing in Wanaka over this stop co-governance tour? Julian Batchelor, the man doing this tour, is uh, due in Wanaka tomorrow night. But the owner of the venue that he has for the meeting has already been approached by the chair of the Wanaka Community Board trying to get the booking cancelled. The owner of the building is David Reed. You might know him better as the, the, the name behind David Reed Homes. He took the booking because he believes in democracy and in free speech. Nothing more, nothing less. But the chair of the Wanaka Community Board, Simon Telfer, rang the Reed household and, according to recollections of the phone call, told Mrs. Reed, David Reed's wife, that Julian Batchelor's meeting would be, quote, divisive for the town. Did she know, he asked, what she was welcoming in, that he was a racist and that the Reeds are supporting Batchelor's tour? Now, Sue Reed believes the chair of the community board bullied her even when she told Mr Telfer that it was her husband who made the booking. David Reed later spoke to Simon Telfer himself. Telfer denies he bullied Mrs Reed, but said that as the Reeds were hosting the meeting, there would be a negative impact. David Reed said he wasn't hosting the meeting, but he had a business arrangement whereby he was renting or leasing his building to Julian Batchelor for the night because David Reed believes in one person, one vote, and he believes in free speech. David Reed asked Simon Telfer, who was the elected chair of the Wanaka Community Board, remember, an elected politician, uh, David Reed asked him if he believed in free speech. According to David Reed, Simon Telfer refused to commit to an answer. Now that is a true story. To me, it says the chair of the Wanaka Community Board is not fit for purpose. Here's another story out of Wanaka. I just happened to pick this up because I I live nearby. I had a really intriguing conversation with the parent of a young woman who attends Mount Aspiring College in the town. This young woman is what might be called religious by others of her peer group, I guess. Uh, she and some of her friends a part of a Christian youth group in Wanaka. So when the school decided it would make a big deal out of Pride Week a couple of weeks back, this young lady and her friends decided they, well, they didn't want anything to do with it. Why should they? It's not part of any core curriculum, and their beliefs meant that they would rather not be involved. Thank you very much. A couple of young women, friends of my acquaintance's daughter, actually went so far as to write to the principal of the school, questioning the Pride Mufti Day and a mural which was painted at the school. They were expressing their opinion. They expected the principal to respect their thinking and their privacy. But no, the principal obviously blabbed the contents of the letter to other staff. And soon after, these two young women went to the school library where a part-time librarian, an adult staff member, mocked these girls for being anti-vax and then anti-trans. Is that disgraceful or not? 
On the Pride Mufti Day, this group of young women decided not to take part. Instead, they just wore their school uniform. On the Mufti Day, other students then accused them of being anti-trans and homophobic for not taking part. Frankly, I have no words beyond the utmost contempt for Mount Aspiring College, their staff and their other pupils. If Pride Week is supposed to be about inclusivity, how about including those who choose to lead a straight Christian life and how about respecting them? Nothing more, nothing less, just respect. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Finally, the government recognises, it seems, that there is a problem at our universities. Uh, They are struggling financially, we know, and they're attracting less and less students. Sorry, that should be fewer and fewer students. So the government has done what it always does when it sees a problem. It just throws money at it. But to be fair, this money comes with a promise that there will be a review of the way that universities are funded, although the planning for that review is not promised until later in the year, by which stage there may well be a change of government, so it may well be all forgotten about. But it's painfully obvious that there needs to be a rethink about the way universities and tertiary education institutions are being run and are being funded. Yesterday's $128 million is going to be spread pretty thinly by the time the eight universities, the Wananga and Te Pukenga, the Polytechs, all get a cut. But let's just talk about the universities for now. Question, do we have too many? Well, not by comparison, really. Melbourne has about the same population as New Zealand and has nine universities, plus its TAFEs or its polytechs. But while we shouldn't revert to the way it used to be with just one University of New Zealand and a whole lot of associated colleges, does there need to be a rationalisation of some degrees and some subjects at our universities. For instance, you only do medicine at Auckland and Otago, you only do dental in uh, Dunedin at Otago University, and engineering is only available in Auckland and Canterbury. But there are seven law schools. Are they all needed? Should some art subjects like languages be concentrated at one or two universities and not spread across the whole country? Should some universities be more science-specific? I think... These are questions worth asking, aren't they? If fewer students are being educated, we have to think about how resources are spread across the sector. And putting more money in is never the complete answer. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. To a place not far from where I live, the Dunedin City Council, it seems, has made up its mind about the bilingual traffic signs. There was never any real doubt about them, but I'm beginning to notice the narrative around the reason for these signs going in and the timing of their installation is changing. Remember the original plan from the Transport Agency was that the signs would be replaced when the other ones were damaged or needed to be upgraded. Well, I think that that need for upgrade will just become a full-scale replacement of all the current signs because... Ah, that's what woke city councils do. Councillors yesterday said incorporating Tereo into road signs would help normalise its use as a living language, except that for the vast majority of Dunedin residents, it is not in the slightest a living language. 
Councillor Mandy Mayhem, and that is her real name, she said the bilingual signage was overdue, but she didn't say why, which suggests that Dunedin City Council isn't waiting for signs needing replacements, it's just going to do the whole lot, lock, stock and barrel, as soon as possible. And then the council's chief executive has decreed, without any reported evidence to support this statement, that having Maori before English on the signs reflected what was culturally appropriate. How does she work that one out? Who says so? Dunedin's rich cultural history is most certainly not a Maori one. Anyway, that's modern-day politics for you. A city founded by Scottish settlers on sparsely populated land 175 years ago finds itself about to have culturally appropriate road signs because, well, because the chief executive says they are. Let me share with you briefly some of the correspondence which has come in. Uh, Firstly, just a couple of quickies. Peter, looking forward once again to your music slots during your show today. Uh, This is from Joseph. Please give your music producer a shout-out. Magnificent selection once again. Happy day ahead to all of RCR listening today, tomorrow, and always. Thank you, Joseph, for that. Very nice of you. Uh, this is from Wayne. It's a slightly longer letter. I'll, uh, I'll just condense it a little bit. It's about the Treaty of Waitangi and what I was talking about the other day. Uh, you're so right, Peter, writes uh, Wayne. Uh, there's far too much of the treaty being deliberately misused, misrepresented, and not fully understood. Uh, this, the Littlewood draft uh, Maori version states, and uh, Wayne goes through all three articles of the Treaty of Waitangi. And then he goes on to quote uh, what Saraparana Nata said uh, in 1922. Let me acknowledge first that in the whole wide world, I doubt whether any native race has been so well treated by European people as the Maori. Some, uh, I ask, say, what about land confiscations? On this subject, Saraparana Nata writes, some have said that these confiscations were wrong and that they contravened the articles of the Treaty of Waitangi. The government placed in the hands of the Queen of England the sovereignty and the authority to make laws. Some sections of the Maori people violated that authority. War arose from this and blood was spilled. The law came into operation and land was taken Uh, for payment. It was their own chiefs who ceded that right to the Queen. The confiscations cannot therefore be objected to in the light of the treaty. If you think these things are wrong and bad, then blame our ancestors who gave away their rights in the days when they were powerful. Stop the gravy train, aka the Treaty of Waitangi, regards Wayne. Thank you for that, Wayne. It's a sentiment which is... uh, quite often expressed by correspondents to this uh, radio station. My address, inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text, 2057. Love to hear from you. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, you'll have seen the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, recently. He became very famous around the world because back in May he crowned King Charles in Westminster Abbey. But he's been a bit of a different one over the years, this particular Archbishop. He once said he sometimes has doubts about his belief in God and that there are moments when he thinks 
Is there a God? Anyway, it's not often remembered that before Justin Welby became a priest, he worked in the oil industry. And now he's decreed, though, that the Church of England, of course, of which he is the boss, must sell its shares in oil and gas companies because Christians, he says, have a duty to protect God's creation. So let's think about this. As a man of the cloth, he has to believe in creationism, of course. So planet Earth, according to him, did not evolve four and a half billion years ago through the Big Bang or by some other scientific or natural process. It was created by God. That's cool. That's his job, to think that and to preach that. But then you see, if God has created this earth, as it is in heaven, then aren't all those old trees and plants and other organisms which sank into the sea and the ground all those billions of years ago, which then went on to form coal and gas and oil, weren't they also created by God? In other words, the criminalization of fossil fuels rather neglects the reality that they are completely natural products too, just a bit older. So maybe the Archbishop should just have a wee think about things here. You know, oil and gas are God's creation too. And the world would not be much fun without them. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Well, Chris Hopkins was mixing it with the big guns yesterday. Not only Xi Jinping, but Klaus Schwab as well. On the surface, the comments at the meeting with the Chinese president seem all very friendly. She said he was attaching great importance to China's relationship with New Zealand, which is all very nice, but I'm sure he says that to all the country's leaders that come to pay homage to him. But the reality is that New Zealand needs China a damn sight more than they need us. But if we can keep selling $20 billion worth of stuff to them every year, then let's keep on doing it until we get a better option. She made some interesting comments about starting a new 50 years of bilateral relations between New Zealand and China, and said we have this comprehensive strategic partnership which we've got to keep going. To which I would say, Chippy, just keep your distance. China like to play a long game. And economic colonisation is a feature of the way they're doing business in vulnerable parts of the world like Africa. We don't want to fall under their spell that much. Earlier in the day yesterday, our PM was mixing it with the gnome of Davos. Why he bothered, I don't know. Do we really want to be seen as getting close to the World Economic Forum and to Klaus Schwab? The man who said the COVID pandemic offers the world an opportunity to reflect, reimagine and reset our world. The man who said just last year that China is an attractive role model to follow. Do we really need to pay any attention to him? Was Chris Hipkins really putting New Zealand's interests first by going on this World Economic Forum panel? We're a trading nation. We're an independent nation whose people want to be aligned with the values of freedom and democracy and not with any other system. Thank you very much, Herr Schwab. Uh, A piece in the business news a couple of days ago which just staggered me. Did you know that there are medical students graduating from New Zealand medical schools who want to work in our health system, but they can't get a job? This in the middle of one of the biggest health workforce crises in our history. Now, from my reading of the situation, this is a combination of bureaucratic bumbling, some arrogance about the ability of these students, 
and some good old-fashioned discrimination based on race, which is stopping these graduates from getting a job here. You see, these students are from overseas. They're here on student visas. They've paid their own way, full fees. They want to stay and work here in our medical system, in our health system. But somehow the system cannot get them a job because preference goes to New Zealanders and Australian graduates. That's out-and-out discrimination, isn't it? Now, there is some excuse also about the lack of supervisors for them in their first year working after graduation. Yet undergraduate medical students have enough supervision and surely the hospital system must be more flexible to get these graduates out onto the wards. But the real issue is surely the bureaucracy. We have a shortage of doctors. The government has just announced it's going to train 50 more doctors each year. Yet there are already about 20 of these New Zealand-trained and willing-to-work doctors not getting a job each year after graduation. I'm afraid I just class that as madness. Altex Machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. I thought you'd like to know that Harry Tam of the Mongrel Mob is being paid by the government to produce cultural reports for young offenders so that they can get reductions on their sentences. In fact, Harry Tam is very proud of what he does and as a co-director of a company called H2R, Hard to Reach Research and Consulting, he's proud to publish the fact that in the last five years his company has produced over 140 what they call Section 27 cultural reports for the court. Uh, He proudly says defendants have received sentence discounts of up to 35% because of factors raised in their reports. In one one instance, he proudly reports that a sentence which could have been over six years in jail was reduced to one year home detention. Now, how much is wrong with all this? Not only are criminals getting significant discounts after these cultural reports, but the taxpayer is actually funding a mongrel mob member to write them. No wonder the National Party policy says the government funding for these cultural reports is going to stop and the money is going to go to supporting victims instead. In the 2020 financial year, these cultural reports cost the taxpayer $6 million. It's probably more now. They're about uh, $3,500 each, I understand. But Harry Tam, of course, just loves this Labour government. He was the guy who led the $2.75 million government-funded gang-led methamphetamine rehab program in Hawke's Bay a couple of years ago, which was found to be not effective because the people who were on the course were still addicted to meth at the end of it. (sighs) Well, what can you say, really? What can you say? You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company this afternoon. This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. If you'd like to get in touch, uh, my address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text, 2057. Have a very pleasant Wednesday evening. I look forward to talking to you again on Friday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show 
on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. 